we will come to the reading of Scripture, and we are going to add, uh, just before the reading that you see in your bulletin here, we are going to read from Matthew 25. Matthew 25. And then we are are going to begin at verse 31. This is the reading of the Word of God. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered together before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. And you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick and in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And then our reading picks up in Luke 16. Luke 16, verse 1 to 13. And I would simply just have you note, for context's sake, that what account comes immediately after this is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The man who had all sorts of wealth and gave nothing for the needy man outside of his door. These are important to understand for this parable. Luke 16, he also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, 
and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least, is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Amen. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Christ is teaching in a setting where both the disciples and the Pharisees are present. In verse 14 tells us this. And so Christ tells a parable not only to warn his disciples about the dangers of a stingy and worldly manner of using wealth, but he is also trying to pierce the heart of the covetous Pharisees. For as you read in verse 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard these things and they derided him. And so he's speaking to them because they are known for devious financial behavior and such behavior, if they did not repent of it, it would surely damn them. However, our Lord does this in a strange way. Our Lord does not use a godly, wholesome character to illustrate this, but he uses a wicked one. And this parable is not an endorsement of what this unjust steward is going to do, but Christ has a simple point. Observe how people of the world will use all sorts of ingenious mechanisms to get the things that they want. 
And we can learn from these men how to secure our own place in heaven, seeing as one day we too are going to be turned out of our own stewardship. And so we will exposit this parable, and then we will give applications concerning riches, stewardship, and death. So verse 1, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. Our first character, the rich man, this is all that we know about him, that he is a rich man. And rich men have a particular problem. They have so much that they cannot manage it themselves. And so they need to hire a financial specialist who can handle it all for them. This is like the guy who is managing all the stocks and all the bonds and dividends and interest in your own retirement account. His job is to keep all that head-spinning work off of you and not only preserve your funds, but make them grow. And quite possibly... This rich man was a business owner engaging in deals with others, seeing as he has a multitude of debtors. But more on that later. Our second character, a steward or manager. He has charge of the books. He has check signing authority. And he can buy and sell at his own discretion his master's goods. But he is a wicked manager because it says he wasted his master's goods. It doesn't say how. Maybe just lack of prudence or carelessness. Or maybe he's one of those individuals. He'd help himself to whatever he like and just soothe his conscience. Say, oh, you know, I'm going to pay it back later. It's all right. The boss is never going to miss it. Whatever the case, he is wasting his master's goods. You know the parable of the man who was given one talent and he buries it in the ground. And he gave to his master simply what he had been given. This man is doing worse. He is driving his master's estate right into the ground. And eventually the rich man hears about it. Verse 2, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship. For you can no longer be steward. It's up. The manager is now out of a job. He's telling this manager, wrap up your accounting and hand over the books. Your position here is done. I've listened to another pastor in the RPCNA point out a striking detail that only Eastern commentators are going to catch. This man was not asked to repay anything that he had wasted. The master was simply forgiving him and letting him go. That's normal in our own world of employment today. Apparently not so back then. And so he says, give an account of thy stewardship. And so the manor has just a little time to wrap up the book, so to speak. And so we come to the manager himself after he is turned out of his job. And as we can see, he has a very great problem. 
He is about to be fired from his job, but all of his life, he has managed high-profile wealth. And so his experience is in managing high-profile wealth for very wealthy clients. But how is he going to get a job with another rich man? He needs a recommendation. Is his boss going to give this to him? Absolutely not. There's no way. And so, his job skills are no good anymore. And so, if his job skills are no good, he may in fact lose all of his property because he cannot maintain his regular style of life. His property and his family are at stake. And he may end up selling everything just to put a meal on his table. Then where is he going to live? If the manager had thought about these things earlier, he would not be in this dilemma. And so you and I should take caution. If we would take stock concerning the outcome of sinful actions we are tempted to take, we would commit far fewer sins than we actually do. And so this man needs to sit down and ponder his future. And he's thinking to himself, what are my choices? There's digging trenches, but I cannot do that. If he would have been more honest, he would have said, no, digging trenches, I'm too lazy to do that. And just working out all day in that burning sun, no, that's just not for me. That's the honest answer. Then, to beg, I am ashamed. He says to himself, can I imagine myself you know, sitting out on the streets and then maybe running into some old business associates and then saying to me, I know who you are. You were the manager of that very wealthy man just down the road. Oh, what happened to you? Well, whatever you've done, you must have really blown it to end up in the situation that you're in. Now you're on the streets and you're begging for money. And he's thinking, I don't want to deal with that. An alternative is that this man just could take responsibility for his sins and own up to it, but that is out of the question. And so this man is determined that he is going to get his meals and his lodging without earning it. His idea, verse 4, I have resolved what to do that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. And so he's sitting in his house and um, he's thinking to himself, you know, I've still got to give a final accounting to my master, but I still have all the books. I have to wrap them up. That means... I have in front of me a full list 
of everyone who owes my master something, and I know how much they owe. And so he thinks, I've got my idea. I know just what I am going to do. These debtors owe my master a lot of money, and I still have some authority. So I am going to call all of my master's debtors to me, and I'm going to write down all of their bills. I'm going to give them some huge write-offs. Total forgiveness. No strings attached. And they are going to be so grateful and so happy that when I am finally out of a job and I lose everything that I have, I'll show up to their house, tell them I need a place to stay, and remind them that just as I did them a favor, it's now time for them to do me a favor. I'll have my meals, and I'll have my house, and if one guy gets fed up with me, I just move to the next guy. And that's exactly what he does. Books in hand... Knowing how much each man owes, he calls, as the text says, every one of his master's debtors to himself. Meaning, this man has several. These are just two instances. The first man comes, and so the manager says to him, how much do you owe my master? And he, sa- and he says to him, He says to him, a hundred measures of oil. So he says, take your bill and sit down and quickly write 50. In modern terms, how much is this? The Greek word is batos, or bath in Hebrew. One bath could be as much as, as little as six gallons, or maybe nine gallons and three quarts. So it's possible that this man owed, in our terms, anywhere from 600 to 1,000 gallons of oil to his master. And so it is a shock. Imagine the shock if someone said to you, you owe 1,000 gallons to my master. Now you owe 500. I'm writing off half. Of your entire bill. The debtor has just had the best day. Of all of his business life. Then comes another debtor. And he says to him. How much do you owe? And he says a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him. Take your bill. And write eighty. Here the word is koros. If you can imagine an oil drum. One koros is just over two of those barrels. So if you can picture in your mind 250 of those giant barrels filled with wheat, and the master says, okay, friend, I'm writing off 50 of those barrels. I'm giving you a 20% discount on your bill. Windfall. And it is a great day to be a debtor to this rich man. So one might ask, why is a bill being written by the hand of the debtor? Authentication. It's your way of proving that the bill is a real one. Because your handwriting is as unique as your fingerprints are. So if it is written in the hand of the debtor himself, and it is written in the hand of the manager, 
It's a way of saying this is a totally authentic and authorized bill. So this bill, this write-down, has legal force. Very possibly, this debtor could go to the courtroom and say, my mas- the master is not forgiving my debt, but here's the bill. I should have this write-down. Some might ask, is there any reason why one is forgiven 50 and one is forgiven 20? I don't think so. These are many debtors, and these are just two examples. But let's track again with our purpose, with the purpose of this parable. This manager is stopping at nothing to ensure that he has a place to go when he is turned out of his stewardship. And so he does this with all the debtors. And the rich man has something of the same problem, and yet a different one. This steward was wasting his master's goods, and what's he doing now to get himself out of the jam? Wasting his master's goods. But there's a different twist on it this time. You might think if you're looking at this manager, man, once that manager is standing before a judge and he's sitting in debtor's prison, he is never going to see the light of day. But the rich man's problem is that by all these huge write-offs, he has probably become very popular. Because if someone gives you a great deal on something, what do you do about it? You go and tell your family and your friends, oh, I went here, and they gave me this great write-down, they gave me this great discount. Oh, I I had dealings with this businessman over here, and he gave me these terms. And what's going to happen? Other people are going to want to do business with this man as well. And so, yes, he's wasted his his master's goods, but probably also earned him more business. And you know what? Everyone likes him now. He is the most generous businessman in all of town right now. And so if he were to go and sue this manager for what he did, he would have to retract all that generosity that was done on his behalf, and he had to pull back on this public image. And so, in a way, this man's arm is twisted and going along with the scheme. And so at the end of the day, what, are his, what does it say? Verse 8. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. So he's got to say, that was an utterly wicked scheme, but that was a genius scheme as well. And what about the manager? He's still out of the job. And suppose it came to this situation where he has to sell everything. Just suppose that all of his house and all of his goods, they're gone, as he was afraid. So he goes to the man who owed those 1,000 gallons of oil and says, he knocks at the door and says, Sir, I I need your help. I've lost my house, I've lost everything, and so I need a place to stay. And suppose this man starts getting a little hesitant. All he has to say is, Sir, remember the favor I did you. I wrote down 500 gallons of oil for you. 
And you can't even give me a place to stay? Is that the kind of businessman you are? Is that the kind of person you are? And so maybe this man would have to blush and say, Okay, I can do something for you. I've got a place for you where I'll make arrangements just so you get on your feet. And so suppose for some reason, just things protract out a little long and this man says, you need to just get out of my place. He just goes to the man who owed all the measures of wheat and does the same thing. And then he go to the next man and the next man and the next man. And so this man has obtained his goal very wickedly, but very shrewdly. He has food and lodging, and he hasn't have to dig trenches or beg to get it. And Christ says, Christ says to all those listening, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. You listen to this story. It's a head shaker. It's an eye roller. Almost laughable, yet somehow genius. And that is what Christ wants you to notice in this parable. Look at this evil manager. He works so hard to be so lazy. He plotted. He schemed. He lied. He forged. Manipulated. And in some sense, he makes his master the better off, makes the debtors better off, and makes himself better off. He would stop at nothing for the worldly things that he wanted. And now Christ, in application, turns to them and says, now what are you going to stop at in order to secure heaven for yourself? What will you stop at for the heavenly treasures that you want? Are you going to be outdone by wicked men pursuing treasures which moth and rust destroy and which thieves break in and steal? What do we have in common with this unjust steward? We too are being turned out of our stewardship. Back at creation, we were given in Adam a mandate to subdue the earth. We were given a glorious stewardship over the Garden of Eden. But in Adam's sin and by our own sin, we have been turned out of our stewardship because like this man, you and I, have wasted our master's goods. And we do still waste our master's goods, do we not? Even in our converted state. We are unprofitable servants. And one day, by death, we are going to hand back over to the Lord everything that he has entrusted to us. And at judgment day, we are going to give a final accounting of all that we have done with our stewardship. Now, like the unjust steward, you must figure out how to ensure you will be received 
into eternal dwellings. We first of all know that it is by grace alone, by faith alone. Keep very clear in the midst of all sermonic applications, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. To him who does not work, but believe in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Yet still, without any contradiction, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord, Hebrews twelve fourteen. The real litmus test of Christian sincerity. And one test is whether the Christian has learned that his wealth is for the kingdom and not for his flesh and his pride. There is a particular application to money from this parable. I believe the main focus is how we use our finances in a way that glorifies God, particularly how we treat those who are in need. And my reasons for it are as follows. As you read Christ's applicatory words, as he says in verse 9, following onward, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves, pay close attention how much money comes up here. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, you may be received into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least, is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least, is unjust also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to yourself the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in another man's, who will give you What is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Now when the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. Mammon is mentioned three times here. And all the applications center around the theme of wealth. Christ caps it off with an application. You cannot serve both God and wealth. And verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money and were covetous derided Christ because they were guilty of financially cheating widows and parents. And they took this, rightly so, as a rebuke to their ungodly greed. And then also, we did not have time to read it, but as you begin at verse 19, what do you have? The account of the rich man and Lazarus. The story of a man who did the exact opposite which Christ says we should do. A man who spent all of his wealth upon himself and entirely ignored the beggar outside his door. 
However, the poor man went to Abraham's bosom and the rich man had no friend to receive him into eternal dwellings. We will come back to this later. The focus on money. Why money? Why this focus? Because it's not the only thing we have to give to God. Because it is no small part of our stewardship. And we all know by experience. We need particular exhortations when it comes to the use of finances. Your life pivots around money. Every decision you make likely involves money somewhere. The difference of a few dollars is the difference between this product and that product. The difference between buying and not buying. It tells volumes about a person, particularly whether their heart is with heaven or with the world. For Christ says, for where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And because we need to be warned about it so often. People ask, why does Christ call it unrighteous mammon? There's a good reason for it. Money deceives us. It gives us a false sense of security. When we think we have so much, we don't need to worry about how we spend it. It has a drowsing effect upon our souls. But also, if we don't have enough, it throws us into a frenzy. We are more terrified than anything else in all the world of not making budget or making that next bill payment. But also, because it is called unrighteous mammon because so many times it comes by corruption. You are never really assured that your paycheck doesn't contain a few dollars of unrighteous gain in it. You never know if your bonus is because of some unscrupulous act by your boss. Many of our household products are so cheap. It is no small secret. Many of our own household products are so cheap because we are, in some indirect fashion, hiring little children to work hours and hours in dangerous environments for very pathetic amounts of pay. That's why your gadgets and your phones sometimes are so cheap and you have such good clothing at such a low cost. It's just reality. I've got no applications on how to handle that, but I'm just saying it's reality. The history of any dollar bill in your pocket may actually shock you. For these reasons, Christ is using repugnant terms to describe money because the love of money is repugnant. It also allows us to see money in a new light. This, to expound on the words of Christ, this is how the world usually uses money. In a fashion that is unrighteous. And it calls us to ask. Maybe I should not be looking to the world. To know how to manage my own finances. I don't deny for a moment. That men of the world have truly shrewd. 
and even good advice on the use of money. But you must watch against the spirit in which that advice is given. And in what spirit they point you towards this or towards that. Because once you realize that the world is blowing its stewardship, you can begin to use your money how God wants. Why else? All the focus on money, because it is no small part of getting the Lord's work done in the world. And sadly, the church in America is hit by financial scandals. As we see uh, health and wealth preachers on television, you know, asking for great offerings and offer and promising all these great blessings. If you will just sow your seed of a hundred thousand a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars or the more that you sow, the more that you reap, it is truly a wicked and ungodly scandal. But it cannot stop us from talking about money either, because we must know how to use it. At the end of the day, money moves things, and even in the church. So a wise use is critical. Who are the friends in verse 9? And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Who are the friends? It's difficult to read, but I think perhaps a clearer way to read it is this. I'm not translating, but put in other words, make this kind of use of unrighteous wealth. Use it in such a way that ensures believers gladly greet you as you come in. To the gates of heaven. The they that you see in verse 9. When it says they may receive you into an everlasting home. Is not the mammon. Mammon is a singular word. But the they here is plural. What other word in this verse do you see that is plural? Friends. And I think the next account that Christ gives in Luke 16 makes it so very clear. What did the rich man do? Wasted his wealth on his flesh. Lazarus was the poor man outside of his gate. And he would have been the friend who would have welcomed the rich man into eternal dwellings. This was a child of Abraham. And Abraham condemns the rich man for using all the wealth for himself And so he had no share in good things. And Calvin notes how Matthew 25, which we have just read of the day of judgment, that Matthew 25 brings clarity to this passage, quoting Calvin, For whatever any man may have generously bestowed on his neighbors, the Lord acknowledges as if it had been done to himself. And that is Calvin's commentary on Luke 16. What is the difference of the account at the day of judgment? Whatever we did to our brothers and sisters 
or whatever we did not do, thus we did or did not do for Christ himself. Those in Matthew 25 are the Christ friends who would greet you or turn you away at your death. So then, stewardship. We will now begin, get into finer applications. Verses 10 to 12. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? I do think it is fair that we can apply this very broadly by good and necessary consequence to many other things. Your, your time, your talents, your friendships, your relationships, your situation as a church member, where you are in society and in the community. I believe that's valid, that this can extend beyond money. And I do believe the Lord does in this life reward faithfulness with a greater temporary trust. And he may also chastise poor stewardship with robbing us by taking from us temporary stewardship. However, I think that which is least in this paragraph refers mainly to money which we are given to use in this life. The much are greater treasures such as grace which we receive in life and glory in the next. For think about it. What is the greater treasure? Is it money or is it grace? And what here is given as a litmus test of what we are able to use? The lower treasures and earthly stewardship. And so there's some real logic in here. If we cannot be entrusted with an earthly stewardship, why should we have more influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives? How can we be assured that we would make the good and proper use of that as well? If a man makes a right, eternity-centered use of unrighteous mammon in this life, he will have true spiritual treasures while on this earth and in heaven. And he that misuses earthly treasures in this life may not be trusted with treasures in the next. If you cannot be faithful with unrighteous mammon, the treasures that will perish at judgment day, how can you handle true riches? What you have now is just a stewardship. But what you have in heaven is truly your own. If you can't handle a stewardship on earth, when someone has got their eye on you and will hold you to account for how you use it, how will you ever be able to handle something that is truly yours? Lesser to greater logic. You can't handle these simpler things. How can you handle these higher things up here? Beware the so-called American dream to come to the end of your life 
and to expect to have a fat, well-stocked retirement account so that you can live as you please. I know a company, one that I work with, their job is basically to do this. All this wealth management company, the questions start out with, if money was not an object for you, how would you like to live? Where would you go? What would you do? What would your spending be like? And don't think small here. Think big. Dream just a little bit here as you think about what this number is. I'm talking things like, do you want that dream Oceanside house traveling the world with no restrictions on your time or your finances, perhaps a private island getaway house, thousands per month spent on trivialities like pedicures, all on income from businesses run by others, or rental properties, stocks, bonds, dividends, investments managed by others. Go where you want. Do what you want. Eat what you want. Welcome to the golden years, your second childhood. Go and play. Complete waste. We can talk about Christian liberty in spending, and this isn't forbidding the weekly coffee at Starbucks. This isn't forbidding buying new furniture as opposed to old, or having a car that actually works. As the Lord does want to enjoy, want us to enjoy the fruits of our labors, not going into that, but I do promise you this, the multi-million dollar private island vacation house will not buy you those friends which Christ says you should, you should procure with your finances here on earth. It will not buy you those friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. God is to be worshipped. But the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life have power to draw forth your best and greatest services. Don't we know that by experience? What things will you not do for a better paycheck? What things will you not do to save or to stock away or to prepare for the future? What do you need to have to feed your ambitions and please yourself all your days is the cry of the flesh. And that is where we say it is unrighteous mammon. And we must ask the Holy Spirit to write upon our hearts so firmly as though written in stone that our finances are not given to us to serve ourselves, but they are to advance the kingdom and to advance His glory, and to serve Him. Anything else outside of that purpose is prodigality, for which we cannot possibly give a good answer. And so the question goes, all right, how do we use our money? 
One immediate application is to the poor and needy. We have scriptural injunctions combined with promises and talking about both. First, the poor. I don't think that I need to cite very many texts for you at all, but just a few. He who lends to the poor lends to the Lord. Proverbs 19.17 Then Ecclesiastes 17 Cast your bread out upon the waters and you will receive it back after many days. It may seem like there is nothing more wasteful than to just take your bread and throw it in the pond because what good does it do you? And so when you give to those who are in need, that may be exactly what it feels like, but you are in fact lending to the Lord when you do this. They can't pay you back. They can't do anything for you. But certainly the Lord sees it, and He is going to remember it. So when you do this, and you come to glory, you will realize you have sent all of your finances out ahead of you. Everything that you have given. Going back to an application that I began to make. How might the Lord reward this? Abundantly, says Luke 6.38, Give and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet, shall it be measured unto you again. One application is clear. Some of the return does come in heaven, and far more than you have actually given. But what about in this life? Is the Lord going to return great finances to you because of all you've given? Not necessarily. You do have the promise that as you have taken care of others, the Lord is going to take care of all of your needs as well. You may be assured of that. You may not be driving a Cadillac or Lexus. You may not have a mansion, as some preachers would want you to think, but you will have what you need in the season that you need it. But also, grace, influence of the Spirit. It is something which, when you use your stewardship as God commands you, He's delighted to reward it in the very best ways the influence of His Holy Spirit and greater communion with Him. Think about it. That is a greater treasure. If you can't be trusted with the management of wealth, you can't be trusted with greater measures of grace. But if you can be trusted to use your wealth in a godly way, you may be trusted with true spiritual riches in this life and more to come in glory. On the flip side, God is free to withhold as he wishes if you do not manage what you have. And so the Lord's lesson would be, if you've been wasting your stewardship, get into the word. Find out how you should be using it. And go and make that godly use of it. And then as the Lord sees fit, he will trust you with even more. Someone might ask, how is this different from the health and wealth prosperity gospel? Fair question, fair question. First of all, we do not expect cars and mansions for this. 
This is not sow your seed into this ministry and expect a great financial harvest. That is not it at all. We are simply stewards and that is the point. It is all His. The Lord can give and take just as He wants and one day we are handing over our stewardship. We are not asking the Lord to give, to give us more things that we are just going to hand over. We are, our goal is to please the Lord in what we do. Second, this is not, if I get this, then I get that. As though we are putting our money in a slot machine and hoping to get out more than we put in. And if that is why you give, expect no blessing. Expect no blessing. What is not given cheerfully, what is not given out of love, you've discharged your duty. And that's it. Third, health and wealth prosperity never thinks in terms of grace and godliness, but only getting back more things that are going to perish in this life, exactly what Christ was warning them to avoid. But we believe the reward of giving and proper stewardship is God himself and fellowship with him. And our giving is an expression of love to him. So every penny expended in proper stewardship means the reception of the giver himself. And that is greater than any earthly treasures. You can be dirt poor, but so long as you have communion with the triune God, you have heaven on earth. One might ask, how is this different from, say, uh, indulgences? Like the Roman Catholic Church Roman Catholic Church implemented, you put your money in and there's something greater in paradise. It's not a market transaction like indulgences. Do this and get that. The bottom line of indulgences is that we are giving just because we want fewer centuries in purgatory. Or we want our relatives to get out of purgatory. No. We do this because we love God. And we love the needy. And we take care of them. And for that reason, God takes care of us. Now, let me be clear. None of this means you don't plan for your own family or your future. It is good and right to save, to figure out how to earn, to think decades down the road about, you know, what happens if I go? Is my wife provided for? What about my children? You know, putting them through college or going through a trade school or paying for the weddings or making sure that they have a good running start on their lives when they leave the house. What about the day when I can no longer work and bring in income? How do I provide for that? Those are fair, legitimate, biblical, righteous questions to ask. By no means should you take any of this and say, he's telling us to give everything away and go live as monastics. Far be it from me. I am only dealing with a certain range in the topic of wealth. But go and do those things. Attitude. What is the core attitude of this? How do you know that you have the heart that Christ is seeking here? 
Best stated in the words of Jonathan Edwards in Charity and Its Fruits, you are looking for objects of mercy. You're not just idly sitting back and saying, I'm waiting for an opportunity to come to me. But you're saying, where is there some good that I can do? Like David saying, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show mercy? So the Christian says, I have the stewardship. Is there any brother or sister or neighbor or family member that I can somehow alleviate their miseries and their distresses? Now, tightening down that application, Galatians 6.10, As we therefore have occasion, we should work toward good, toward all, especially those of the household of faith. Let your brothers and sisters in the Lord be the dear objects of your mercy and of your love. Because Matthew 25 is not indiscriminately talking about everybody who has a need. It is specifically talking about your brothers and sisters in the Lord who are united with Christ in covenant along with you. Certainly, the unconverted, as you are able, help them and alleviate their, minister, their miseries. But think most especially and dearly about those who are of the household of faith. Whether orphans, widows, those who are struggling, think about how you can be of good to them. But remember, Christ takes personally what is or what is not done to themselves, done to them, as though it were done to himself. What other uses? I think one of the things we ought to do, you know, when it comes to this, when you think about how to be godly, we should learn to think creatively to some extent. You know, what are other ways that we can alleviate misery in the world? What are other ways to use our stewardship? Do you have any other places you love to give? What about missions? Do you think about, about pastors and missionaries who are going to the front lines of the spread of the gospel where it is dangerous? They have many needs, prayer and resources, a good ministry team. Certainly among them, they need finances. What about churches that need help in getting established? What about Bible translations? That is a long, tedious, and expensive work to take on. And there are still thousands of languages in the world where there is no Bible in that language. It's still greatly needed. What about a ministry that you have particular thankfulness for? Or maybe a Christian seminary. Think of this. Certainly at, certainly at a seminary, they depend a lot on donations. Because it allows them to keep the cost down. What if by your giving, they're able to make the cost affordable? And more men can be trained for the ministry and go out and do that work. And so as a result of your giving, there are more pastors 
in the RPCNA or in the world in general. And therefore there is more godliness, more likeness to Christ, more salt and light in society as a result. There is no end. If you're willing to think creatively about this, there is no end of opportunities that you can give towards. What about other things like for your own spiritual edification, do you buy books for yourself, DVDs, things for your children? I encourage you, brothers and sisters, be liberal when it comes to resources for your children. Don't spare your spending on books and movies that will actually teach them. And don't spare for yourself either. You might put some money away, but what are you getting out of it? Spiritual riches. What about for brothers and sisters? Have you ever thought, I know so-and-so is thinking about this or going through that or they're wrestling through this. What if I get them a good solid book on this issue? That is going to pay great returns all throughout their life. This is not meant to be exhaustive on the use of money. And I know there are many questions about wise giving, who and when, and there are questions like what's actually toxic charity, what's a giving in a way that actually causes more damage, legitimate and fair questions. And I cannot go into those because of time's sake, but reckon this into your planning. Your days are numbered. The day is coming when you will die and you will hand over your master's property and you will give your final account. The unconverted send the poor out only with prayers and blessings when they could actually give more or they send out their money just because they want their name written on the side of the hospital building But the true children of God give help along with their prayers. Remember that the unjust steward, how eager he was to have a place to land once he was out of a job. Much more, you brothers and sisters, manage the affairs and your finances in such a way as to ensure that on that day, when you yourself are turned out of your stewardship and you have to give your final accounting to God, that you will have friends to receive you into eternal dwellings. And not only that, but that it will be the very best eternity that you could have possibly asked for. Let us pray. Our Father... These are not easy things to hear. But we desire to be submitted to your word in all things. We ask that your Holy Spirit will come and make application to every heart as is necessary. Lord, all that has been good and right, owned by the power of your Spirit, and we ask so in the name of Christ, who has given us this parable and this word. Anything, O Father, that has been imbalanced, forgive, and in your goodness and in your providence, bring about truth. But Lord, we stand under the authority of your word, and we ask, O Father, that we will treasure these things, 
lay them in our hearts, and practice them in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.